Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 237 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, April 25th, 2023. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm not running for president. You? I'm Steve Vladek. I'm Not only am I not running for president, I'm not teaching another class in calendar year 2023. That's, that's a nice segue. Not only am I not running for president, I'm not doing any other work either. There you go. Now I get it. Um, well, so yesterday was your last class. <laughs> yesterday was my last class. Congratulations. Um, whoa, I just got really loud. Hold up. Sorry, everybody. Should we redo? No, I think I'm fine. Let's keep going. You know, I, I've been loud before. Um, uh, but I'm having a, so I'm having today what I would have previously called a review session, but we've received new instructions from our overlords that we are not supposed to call them review sessions anymore. The hand of administration at Texas law. They are it's firm uh, and clear. They are, they are, they are uh, extended office hours that happen to be for the entire class and not in my office. I, you know, I like some good rule compliance. I love, this is music to my ears, Steve. Is it really? Well, you know. Um, <laughs> So your class went well? Uh, I think so. You know, the, the students might have some thoughts about that, but <laughs> you'll find out. I'll find out on the evaluation. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, and we had our faculty dinner last night, our big annual shindig. Yeah, that was really nice. We, we marked the retirements of, of, well, we have several retiring colleagues. Not all of them have a taste for the celebration at the end, and we try to respect that. So last night we celebrated the retirements of Bob Bone, uh, Calvin Johnson, and Scott McCown, and uh, you know, it turns out our colleagues who were celebrating them are quite the orators. That was really nice. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I meant that in a fully positive way. Your laugh suggested otherwise. Well, I mean, you know, who was the guy? Uh, was it Edward Everett who spoke after Lincoln at Gettysburg and spoke for like two and a half hours? <laughs> I I liked everything I heard. I thought it was awesome. Um, that, that's probably that's why I'm dean. Indeed, I'm into that stuff. Okay, so we've got and why I will never be dean. I, it would be, reason it, reason number four hundred and sixteen why Steve will never be a dean. It would of a be law great fun to see a law school that you were running. <laughs> Come on, heir apparent. Um, no, thank you. <laughs> we can trade off. It'll, it'll be like the podcast. Listen, I, I'm never going to be the dean of a law school, but I sure as hell am never going to be the dean of a law school in Texas. Well, you never know. You never know. And if, if somehow you end up dean here one day uh, from my retirement, I will make a t-shirt that says that. As opposed to the t-shirt the I'm wearing now that I'm just a, a professor with a Twitter account. It reads professor with a Twitter account. And if you know, you know. If you know, you know. Okay, that's really funny. Um, okay, so we have great things to talk about today. We do. We are finally getting around to a decision by the D.C. Circuit that we've been waiting for for quite a while. A long time. It's the Al Gila case. This is a Guantanamo, habeas-related, due process-related, Gitmo detention case. Lollapalooza. It's, uh, it's, it's an old standby topic for us, and we're finally back to it. This decision was rendered on April 4th, but the, uh, the uh, public couldn't see the full contents until the 12th, and, well... Better late than never. Here we are. So we're going to break down. I, I haven't heard any other podcasts breaking down Al Gila yet. So, you know. <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know from a market research perspective Indeed. about our podcast. <laughs> uh, other hot topics. Badia. Not Padia. Yes. Badia. So we've got a, a case you're involved in. Yes. And um, this, you know, give us a quick, like. So this is, a, this is a, a, a tort suit arising out of the crash of a, a civilian cargo plane in Afghanistan in 2010 where the, there are sort of interesting, messy doctrinal questions about whether the contractor defendant, who's allegedly responsible for the crash, um, can claim a version of the military contractor defense 
that the Supreme Court famously or infamously, Bobby, depending upon where you stand, articulated in a 1988 case called Boyle. Um, we, that is to say the plaintiffs who I represent, won in the Second Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals. Um, the contractor sought certiorari in the Supreme Court, and we've been waiting quite a while um, for the Solicitor General to weigh in. The court had asked the SG for its views. We finally got those last week, and they're good. Aha. Uh-huh. We'll dig into that. I, I must pause. Spo- to, spoiler alert. I they're good. I must pause to picture Steve as plaintiff's attorney. I'm looking forward to seeing the billboards along the highway. <laughs> this is awesome. Me, Adam Lowy, and Thomas J. Henry. Um, you should be so lucky. Mm, um, indeed. So we will we right, will at least At that. least one of those three people has a private plane. Um, yeah. <laughs> so now I'm picturing Steve as like a, a, a billboard plans attorney, Dean, with mm. private plane. This is mm. getting better all the time. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, things that will never happen for 200 Alex. <laughs> Not even, things that will never happen for $1 Alex. Exactly. Now, we also have a Guantanamo transfer to take note of, so we'll, we'll recap the numbers We're down there. to 30. Down to 30. And, you know, there's, as we've said repeatedly on the show, there's, there's, a number, I guess, let's see, with 30, there's 16 that can be transferred, most of those Yemeni, and so that's what kind of holds those up. Uh, then you've got, let's see, uh, if I've got this right, we've got three, you, you've got two people, post-conviction, military commission. I wasn't ready for the math. I think. Hold up, yeah, I got what? you. You got it? a dozen others who are in, in the Six, pipe. You got to write about the 16, three, three in indefinite law board detention who are not recommended for transfer, right. and then 11 in the commissions, 10 pending, and one Al Balul serving right. his sentence. And so I think it's fair to say that the, the three trickiest ones, it's sort of, if you're looking, where's the hard candy core yes. of this thing? It's the three who do not appear to be in line for military commission prosecution, yeah. but who are also not being, who have not yet been approved for transfer through a periodic review board about yeah. which we'll be saying more Indeed. in a moment. Indeed. And uh, those present long-term sticky situations. I mean, it's all. Well, they're all. It's all. Yeah, I mean, rel- <laughs> graded on the curve. Graded on the curve here. Graded on the curve. I mean, it's twenty twenty. The longest term, stickiest there you go. situations. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. We are wordsmiths around here. Okay, Alhila. Um, may- maybe some. Well, you didn't preview our frivolity. Oh yeah. Aaron Rodgers is a Jet. Aaron Rodgers in the Jets. So this is a question: Is the is it Benny in the Jets, or are we going when you're a Jet, you're a Jet all the way? Like this is a it's a real culture clash, I think. Well, I, actually, the latter is a little more apt because like, how much how much of Aaron Rodgers' heart is in uh, in this? His mm. his body seems to be in pretty good shape. His his mind certainly, even when he seemed distracted from the Packers, he always delivered on the field. So that suggests he'll be able to transfer to the Jets and still still bring it. The guy's obviously got a lot of pride, and he'll. He, to, is, that, is that an understatement? Um, he's got a lot of pride, and I think will be motivated to show that he can do a, a miracle turnaround for the Jets. They've got tools. Well, we'll get to all that. We'll get to all that. Sports ball later. National security. I just first. The, the Giants fan in me just loves making fun of the Jets. So this is this will be good good times for all. All right. So, all right, Al Hila. Al Hila. So this case has been sitting in the D.C. Circuit for a long time. Um, do you want to remind folks, or should I remind folks, of sort of how we got here? Well, maybe we should. So we'll kind of start with his story, okay. or what, yeah. what we know of his story. Yeah. So uh, Alhila is from Yemen, and you know he, he is an older person. He was an adult in, I guess, the 80s, and certainly by the 90s, and was involved in Yemeni tribal power structures. As, as the opinion recounts, he was a senior guy in his particular uh, um, tribal affiliation, but also became pretty involved in 
what I guess we could call governmental affairs in Yemen. And from that perch, during the period post-Soviet uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, pre-global visible emergence of al-Qaeda, was in a position through his, I guess through his employment or his connections, whatever it was, uh, to facilitate the travel of what we today call foreign fighters. For those who don't recall or never knew this stuff, there, there was a period in which there was a, uh, when the Soviets were in Afghanistan, there was a large inflow of, a large inflow of foreign fighters coming from various parts of, especially um, Egypt and North Africa and various parts of the Middle East, uh, that wanted to go in and to, and to varying degrees have some involvement with the jihad against the Soviets. And this kind of created a whole sort of uh, decentralized network of facilitation for that. And it didn't entirely go away once the Soviets were out. In fact, much of the origin story of, of modern al-Qaeda uh, as, as it formed when Zawahri and, and bin Laden sort of came together to, to create the base, it was about how to take this logistical ap apparatus, this recruitment, travel, safe house, and training network, and how, how to sort of purpose it towards the next step now that the Soviets are out. That, that's a, a very loose generalization, but I think it's basically right as a description. And so the way to think about it is from the government's perspective, Al-Hila played a significant role um, I gather from within Yemen uh, in this network and continued that in the 90s. And in that sense, the, the papers aren't exactly clear, and maybe if one's more steeped in the details, you'd know this. But from what I can tell, it's it looks more like the claim of the government is that he was functionally, rather than perhaps formally, part of al-Qaeda. But functionally or formally, either one would work for the government's detention model. He ends up traveling after 9-11. He's in, I think, Cairo. He's in Egypt when someone grabs him, presumably Egyptian and or CIA uh, personnel, and he's sort of incommunicado for a couple of years. It, the impression I have, Steve, I don't think it was a black site situation. I think he's in Egyptian custody during that period, then gets turned over and sent to Guantanamo. So what you have here is sort of a uh, non-Afghan theater, Al-Qaeda functional, maybe formal alleged member um, from the pre-9-11 period and into the immediate post-9-11 period. That's actually kind of an unusual fact pattern. For a Gitmo detainee, the vast majority of Gitmo detainees over time have some sort of geographic uh, proximity involvement with being on the ground in Afghanistan. That's not all of them, though. It, you just don't get that many cases where you don't have that, that nexus to the theater. In any event, um, he brought a habeas petition pretty early on. It lingered for years while like everyone's, so ones, like everyone's right. until Bumedia made clear that you definitely for sure can do that. And then over time, his his case eventually moved forward. I believe it was Judge Lamberth, our, our graduate here at Texas Law, one of our finest graduates, an amazing federal judge with a remarkable track record. Uh, we love Judge Lamberth here. Uh, judge Lamberth resolved the case. And apparently, we're not the only ones that love Judge Lamberth because I'd say uh, uh, the D.C. Circuit, certainly the, the majority here loves him because there's a lot of very uh, strong appreciation for how he handled and yeah. and applied the complex Gitmo habeas process. I mean, just to be clear, I mean, Lambert's opinion is dated January 20, 2019. So it took quite a while to get all the way to a final judgment in the district court. Yeah, and so the, uh, the ins and outs of it are simply that uh, – there's like so many of these cases, not in the recent years where it's all gone gone quiet because most of these cases have run their course, but this is a lingering one. But like many of the ones before, it raises questions about some key elements of the, the post-Bumedian Gitmo habeas framework. 
the burden of evidence, the burden of proof is on the government, but it's set at the preponderance level, and it's it's commonplace for detainees to challenge that. Um, hearsay is admissible. There's ex parte elements. There's a presumption of authenticity for the uh, the origination of evidence, not not the uh, truths of the matters asserted therein, but from whether the evidence is as the record purports it to be. And these elements are are very familiar things that for I guess what since. What more than a decade, Steve? Yeah. Um, these things have been pretty settled. But what's fascinating is that one question that keeps not getting clearly resolved is: Can we bring the Fifth Amendment due process clause to bear as the doctrinal lens through which to kick the tires on these same questions? Well, and not just those same questions, but also on on sort of as we got further and further removed from two thousand one length of detention questions, right, both in the abstract and yes. on the far side of being cleared by a periodic review board. Right, that's right. So uh, let's bifurcate the set of issues. There's the kind of what I would call the the classic procedural objections, which right. I just recounted. Like the front end ones. The front end ones about complaining about the, uh, the rigor of the habeas evidentiary review right. process. And, and like that sort of the, the initial, am I lawfully detained question. Yeah. Simply put, from the, once you try to bring the Fifth Amendment to bear, it's procedural due process complaints. And, and substantive? Well, for the second part. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, so the bifurcation. <laughs> and then you're rightly pointing out that um, the more the thing that's going to last and maybe was the more plausible pathway for Alhila's success, if he ever has it, um, the, the substantive, am I still detainable? Right. If, I, if, if it's true, I did everything you said, if you're right about all that, am I actually someone who, as so defined, is legally detained? Are detainable? you not detained? Are, are you, was that a gladiator? <laughs> <laughs> are you not detained? Okay, I can't decide if it's in bad taste or not to have that be the show it's title. It's probably in bad taste. Uh, which makes me think we should probably use it in our humorous world. I mean, no one's noticing anyway. Well, fair. Um, <laughs> but so can, some can, people can, notice. So, can, there's, there's some subscribers. That should, that, not that Linda Hamilton episode title did well. Um, <laughs> so, so the one of the things I think ought to be said here is there was a backdrop, and indeed we a backdrop we covered in real time, where the oh, DC yeah. Circuit had this nasty internal fight about whether it actually had previously resolved the due, the question of whether... So Bobby's noting two sets of due process questions. There's a threshold question, which is, does due process apply at all right. to the Guantanamo right. detainees? Neither substantive nor procedural matter if... There's no due process protection. the Fifth Amendment place. has no application and to non-citizens right. detained outside the United and States. And so there's, there is, uh, there, you know, the, there's no question that an old panel opinion by Judge Randolph in Kiemba 1, one of the Uyghur cases said the due process clause didn't apply, but that opinion was vacated by the Supreme Court, and the the per curiam opinion on remand is sort of a bit hazy about whether it formally holds that due process doesn't apply. So this led a couple of D.C. Circuit judges in 2018 and 2019 to write, not that they would hold that the due process clause does apply, but just that the question wasn't settled, that they did not understand the court's prior precedents to settle the question. That's when Al-Hila became a big case, because after Al-Hila appeals Judge Lambert's ruling, Judge Lambert assumed without deciding that the due process clause applied and just held it was satisfied, right? Um, Al-Hila draws a very conservative panel in his appeal to the D.C. Circuit, and that panel holds in 2020 that the due process clause doesn't apply at all. 
Um, even though the government, the Trump, I mean, then the Trump administration had taken the position that you don't need to hold that, that you could hold like Lambert right. did. The Constitutional avoidance. You don't have right. to reach that issue because right. the an important piece here is everyone agrees since Bimetian, obviously the suspension clause applies such that there must be habeas review. And that brings with it something. It brings with it right. these requirements of meaningful review. And that is what the entire past decade plus of Gitmo habeas litigation procedurally has been all about. What are the meets and bounds of the meaningful review? And it seems pretty pretty universally agreed at this point, including amongst all these judges, that you know once you get down to the doctrinal details, whatever due process would require. Actually, it's not agreed amongst these judges. I think some of the dissenting say, judges so that, right. who don't think uh, due process applies here don't go out of their way to much. say, like, but if it did, <laughs> it would require more, right. which is interesting. Yes. Um, um, yeah. But the, so, but the other thing I was going to say, so, so there's, this, there's this remarkable sort of intra-circuit fight, right, about um, a question that is probably, Bobby, less important in the habeas cases than 100%. in the military commission cases, where it's ginormously important. And, and I would go further and say, and also just conditions of confinement yep. and, and, and treatment issues. Right. And so the irony is that this question is being litigated in the context in which it actually makes the least difference. Yeah. Because as we see in Alhila, so many of the DC Circuit judges think whatever due process requires is, is already yeah. provided. Meaningful, for. meaningful habeas review is due process of right. law, which I think, by the way, is pretty clearly right. Um, so so yeah. I, I, I think we're going to largely agree with maybe, some, like, with maybe some marginal disagreements, not about the threshold bucket of questions, but about the sort of the more substantive side of the due process Yeah, I think on, on that part, I, I suspect we probably will. Yeah. Um, and that'll be a good discussion. But just, but just really quickly, just to finish the procedural posture, yep. right? So you get this very conservative panel that goes further than I think even the government said it needed to, right, in affirming Lamberth in 2020. And this provokes the effort to take the case on bonk. Um, and so the case goes on bonk. I want to get the date exactly right. I think it's in the order here. Um, the case goes on bonk on April 23rd, 2021. And, and meaning that the full complement of, of, of then at that moment, <laughs> then active D.C. Circuit judges, yep. which includes obviously many, many more than just the three that were on the original panel, they're going to relook at the issue. And this, you know, Steve, how would you describe the rarity of that? Not completely rare, but only in big deal. It doesn't Only happen. when it matters. I mean, so there are courts that go on bonk a lot. The D.C. Circuit's not one of them. Yeah. Um, right, it's not the it's not at the it's not at the second circuit end of the spectrum, which is never. Um, but it's sort of toward the second circuit yeah. end of the spectrum. Um, so the other thing I was going to say is part of why the timing is interesting is because the DC circuit itself changes a lot while this case. I mean, so they, they agree to go on bonk in April April twenty third, twenty twenty one. It takes two years from there to get the decision out. You know, the arguments in September of twenty twenty one. And even then, it's 18 months to get the ruling out. So by the time this comes down, I think if my math is right, there are 10 judges who ultimately participate in the decision. Um, judge, now, Justice Jackson actually was on the court for the oral argument, but obviously doesn't participate in the decision. Two of the judges have gone senior. Um, judge Katsis recuses, I think, because he was in. Right. Right, Litigated the, some of these cases. Right. Um, and then the two newest D.C. Circuit judges, Judges Childs and Pan, don't participate. So it's like it's quite a weird. Yeah, it's really wild. And, and of course, you know, talking about Judge Justice Jackson uh, being on the court, obviously would, would um, well, would she have to recuse since she didn't? I mean, she heard argument. I think she'd probably, I don't know yeah. that she'd have to recuse. But, but I think we both agree that this to. particular opinion, this is not going to the Supreme Court because it's. I agree. 
yeah, for reasons we'll describe, right. it's just not that kind of right, case. So, so before we do the weeds, let's just let's just hit the, the top oh, level. But what about the? Uh, we should also talk about the Biden administration's uh, super awkward. Like, uh, 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 I don't know what we want to say about this. Yeah, I, I was going to say that for later. I have real problem. So you know, we should. Okay, so what happened there? Yeah, I mean, so we go, we go from the Trump administration, right. which said, "Hey, w- he's he's detainable. It process is satisfied, but you don't have to decide the due process issue. It's subsumed within the suspension clause issue. So don't reach the constitutional question." And then the Biden administration. Well, what? How do you describe the position they took in court? Yeah, um, you know. If you're going to reach the constitutional question, we want you to reach it in a good way, but like we're not sure you should reach it. We're sort of in, you know, we want to win, but we also don't want to screw up the law. And so, is it fair to say that obviously there was sufficient, a remarkably suf- sufficient amount of disagreement within yes. Yes. the the relevant decision makers that it just jammed the system and they couldn't really take a position that was very clear? Yes, that's pretty uncommon. Yeah, although I mean, ironically, it it has the the most recent example I can think of is. What the their position was vis-a-vis Al Balul, uh, not there. What yeah. the Obama administration's position was oh. vis-a-vis Al Balul. I, th- I think not, not ironic, but actually very fitting because part of what goes on here is I think when when you're in administration on the left, it is it is very there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in operating and defending Guantanamo, while the rhetoric is otherwise right. And I think it in it and the legal complexities that cash out from this can lead to these sort of log jams where you can imagine DOD general counsel taking a really, really strong yeah. view, maybe a, a national security council legal and other and national DOJ security laws. Like, Whoa. And, and, and then, and the political context yeah. kind of cutting against that. So. But, so, but the problem is, so what, what ends up resulting, and this is, this is what happened in the, so Al-Balul, just for those who don't get the reference, Al-Balul was this, um, remarkably complex, it, it was for basically five years, right, the big military commission case in the D.C. Circuit, where the question was whether the D.C. Circuit was ultimately going to bless the military commission's ability to try non-international war crimes, like conspiracy and solicitation. And there actually finally was like a conclusive panel ruling that really teed the issue up perfectly for the Supreme Court, right? You had, I think it was, what, Rogers and Tatel on one side saying you can't try non-international war crimes. I think it was Henderson, if memory serves, mm-hmm. on the other saying, yes, you can. Like, folks will disagree about who's right, but it was clean. It was there. It was perfect. Yeah. And then the Obama administration successfully got the court to go on bonk and hyper-complicate it <laughs> in ways that created a very, very unstable precedent and a non-cert-worthy right, dispute. And I, just, I feel like the same thing has happened here, where the panel opinion in Al-Hila, which I vehemently disagreed with, was at least clean. Like, you know, that that would have teed the issue up for the Supreme Court. Right. And now and now it's a mess. And so, you know, I think in both circumstances, the Obama and the Biden administration lawyers succeeded in sort of the narrowest terms, which is they won. Um, right. But yeah. at the expense of, I think, doctrinal clarity and at the expense right. of which is broader resolution. Th- that's totally right. And I would say that at least some of them would say, exactly, that we, do, we are not seeing clarity. Right. But the pro- and, and the problem from my – and so I understand why that's in their interest. The problem oh, yeah. is that from right. the perspective of people who 
want the ball to be advanced and who think that we ought to be in a position to start resolving some of these pretty central legal questions. In about 2023, what are you talking about? But so, you know, when people sort of look at, when people look at Guantanamo and say, how, how is it possible these questions haven't been settled? The answer is because you've got government lawyers doing what government lawyers have done in these cases. What, what, what it reflects is that there are relatively few people who really want the clarity that might actually result from it. Or at least the people who want the clarity are not the position are not in a position to provide. They're not it. making the litigation right. decisions Whereas, or writing the opinions. Right. And so actually the clarity is probably better for almost everybody except right, right. The, the government lawyers and maybe even the DC Circuit judges. So that's right. So why don't we summarize what the DC Circuit actually held? Okay, so um, the on the proceed the procedural part's easier to yes. talk about but yes. less interesting too, and not at all surprising. Um, the the majority of the en banc opinion, the, the holding is that as earlier had been the case, there's no need to actually reach the due process question because you could take each of the particular doctrinal complaints about hearsay, about authentication, about the preponderance of the evidence standard. And their argument is even if you assume for the sake of argument that due process applies, it comes out the same way as under the existing suspension clause meaningful review analysis. And there's a there's a good little account of how that works. It's all sort of Matthews v. Eldridge balancing of interest. There's some interesting work distinguishing certain precedents, but none of it's terribly surprising. Um, and it's in the conclusion at the end is that Judge Lamberth did an exceptionally uh, careful job in navigating some of the trickier parts. Steve, I think it's fair to say that the the procedural question that that hung up the court the most, that gave it the most pause, is the one it saves right for the end, where there were a few items, a few items of classified information that did get reviewed by Judge Lamberth after a lot of SEPA-like procedural screening, he looked at a few things and took into account a few things that not only did uh, Alhila not see, but Alhila's counsel, who had a, a secret level clearance, uh, also did not see. But um, there's, there's an important nuance in there. The court puts a lot of weight on the idea that um, these things were not withheld because there was no way under any circumstances they could be shown to cleared counsel, but simply because the the counsel in question here did not have top secret, let alone SCI clearance level, and they didn't affiliate a co-counsel who did. And the question remained open whether there was any obstacle to seeing the information at the counsel level um, other than that step. The court writes it as if, look, if they just gotten somebody with the right clearance, then they could have seen it. But then they kind of balance that out by saying, in any event, these items of, of reliance on ex parte information were so narrow relative to the, the mass of the proceedings. And in at least one instance, they point out, Judge Lamberth relied on this stuff to rule against the government on the admissibility of something. So they basically say no harm, no foul, if there was harm at all. And if there was harm, they kind of blame Alhila. Is that a fair depiction of that? Yep. Yeah. So I think we both agree that the more interesting part, which unfortunately I think gets much less rigorous treatment, I yes. actually think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mess, is the substantive detainability. Right. But, in other words, assume it's all true. Alhila was just right. as I described earlier. Is he still detainable in 2023, given what's happened since? So there's also a, there's also a substantive due process holding that's not tied to length of detention, right? I mean, so so to be clear, all right. So there are ten judges voting, right? Um, six, so all 10 reject Alhila's procedural due process claims 
and all 10 reject at least most of his substantive due process claim. There's one small chunk that's left. Um, the difference is that the majority, the six-judge majority, rejects it by assuming without deciding, the Lamberth approach, assuming without deciding due process applies and that due process is satisfied, right? But the four dissenters, I think it's worth stressing, right? Oh, yeah. the, the four dissenters are pretty, I mean, and that's what, it's Henderson, Rao, Walker, and Randolph, right, are pretty adamant um, that the due process clause doesn't apply at all and that that's how the case should be resolved. Randolph also, in Randolph fashion, goes after the government for having the temerity to change its mind. How, how dare the executive branch take different positions across different administrations? Um, but, I, you know, what's, t and, and sorry, there's one more, there's a three-judge concurrence by Judge Pillard that goes the other way that says, actually, here's why I think there are really good arguments for why the due process clause does apply. Um, and so you have this, once again, like mush in the middle, where it's yep. like, you know, if, if, if I were to ask you, Bobby, what, what's the current law of the D.C. Circuit about the due process clause yeah. applying to Guantanamo? Undecided after two decades. Right. So, boo. Like, I just want, I just want to be on the record. Like, <laughs> boo. Um, all right. The, messy, <laughs> the, the messiest question and the one that the court sort of leaves for remand, right, is um, the notion that uh, Al Hila has been detained for so long that even if he was otherwise detainable, even if he did everything the government said, there comes a point at which the length of his detention raises perhaps due process and Bobby's statutory questions, right? Especially given that he's since been cleared by a PRB. So I don't know if I quite agree with that description. I thought it was not the length as such. Right, but the impact But actually, the PRB. The, the PRB yes, so yes, yes. We should probably lay out the PRB. I'm sorry, so, yeah. so let's back up. Right. Yeah. So, so the Ambon the court rejects the pure length of detention claim, right? Right, right. That's, that's, that's right. There, There's a line about like, look, the length is, it's not arbitrary, it's tacked on to the length of the armed conflict. So what we're talking about, folks, is detention not based on criminal prosecution and conviction, but rather detention on the theory that there's an ongoing state of armed conflict, and under the law of armed conflict, if you capture uh, an enemy uh, force member, a so-called enemy combatant, then you can hold them without charge. For the duration of hostilities. Yeah, not as criminal punishment, but simply to prevent them from returning to the other right. side. And the idea is, look, as long as the conflict is going on, and, and here's my first criticism here. At this point, there are really, really serious questions about whether there is still an yes. ongoing state of armed yes. conflict with, and here's the critical qualifier, with the particular organized armed group that is the one that the particular detainee in question is said to have been functionally part of. Um, that's not to say that there are not people out there in the world who still identify as core Al-Qaeda as distinct from Islamic State or AQAP, etc. But is it really the case that that lingering rump still has organized armed group right. coherence and sufficient to create and in 2023 you know when was the last violent uh act running in either direction right. between that core group not islamic state and not united, aqp not some other group and the united states right. and that gets like such desultory yeah. treatment and we should emphasize like this is not you saying that this is this is me saying this <laughs> And, and if you know if you know anything about the past twenty something years, you would know that 
I would be pretty quick until pretty recently. I'd be pretty quick to say like there's obviously still at least some case for saying there's an ongoing right. exchange. I think in 2023, given where we're at with the core legacy Al Qaeda, it's not that it doesn't exist at all, but there is a serious question about whether there's really still an armed conflict there. This is this is what episode 237 of the podcast, and, and Bobby has just pulled the. And this isn't just Steve making this argument. <laughs> this is me making this argument. <laughs> But we we got to figure out how to get that into the title somehow. I know we got to figure that out. When, when, when Bobby's the when Bobby's the lib, um, <laughs> not lib. It's I know just, you know, la- I, just I, lawyer. Uh, well, that t- tell me about it. There, there's a title. <laughs> tell me about it. Um, so so I mean I. And by the way, I'm not saying that it's clearly resolved, no. but but that deserves some actual yes. I don't know briefing, argument, and analysis by say the on bonk DC circuit. Right now, you could try to you could try to skirt this, and they they kind of gestured this way. They cite your favorite case, Ludicky, and they they basically say like, look, the fact that the the shots are no longer being fired doesn't mean it's it's all done. That's true. However, Hamdi's a little more recent. Yes. And Hamdi has something to say about right. this. It's really, the Connor I mean, plurality it's, it, says it's the key hard, thing. It's hard to read. I mean, Ludicky stands for the proposition that a war never ends until the political branches conclusively say it does. And, like, I don't know how you read well, the plurality opinion in Hamdi. Right, and, and Hamdi, Hamdi is inconsistent with right. that. Right. Uh, now, right. That, I would add that, this. That reasoning yeah. may unravel, Justice O'Connor writes. <laughs> that pres- so you're saying that precedent may unravel. I mean, hey. So, um, again. I'm, I'm so old that, like, my first big law review article was about Ludicky. Yeah, well, do I recall? Isn't that the one that made me think you were already like a professor yes, at Yale? Yes, so I wrote to you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, most of y'all have heard this. I'm sure I've said this on yes, the show before. Yeah. But for anyone who's new to this, I was a professor at Wake Forest. I'm looking at uh, SSRN. I see this cool article. Actually, I think it was a militia. It was, the most, it was, it was militia. my note. It was yeah, my note. I, I see this article by some guy. I look kind of casually. Yale Law School. Some Yale guy. And I'm like, oh, man, this Professor Vladek sounds amazing. <laughs> so I send him this like obsequious note. Oh, dear Professor Vladek, I read your article. It's so great. And he writes back, oh, it's great. I'm a student at Yale. <laughs> I'm too well. <laughs> and that's how we met. That was our meet cute. And- <laughs> Although we met, we met in person at Double Ellis in San Francisco. In yeah, later, though. It was yes. later after that. Um, so, listen, I, I agree with all of that. I think, you know, the the extent to which courts have not even tried to grapple with the consequences of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan right. on any of these questions. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, though, like, this case was briefed and argued before the withdrawal. Yeah. Well, to me, it's not even the withdrawal from Afghanistan. That's obviously important, the withdrawal yeah. from Afghanistan. Yeah. I, I was never in the camp, and this is partly what my comment earlier yeah. was about. I was never <laughs> in the camp that you really only had armed conflicts so long as you had that particular conventional conflict setting. Yeah. What I'm trying to make is a separate point that the level of interaction between the, the organizational coherence of core original al-Qaeda plus the level of violent interaction between it and the United States has to be constantly reassessed yep. and considered. And yep. at a certain point, there's no clear bright yes. line, but at a certain point, um, it's very hard to make the claim that there's still armed conflict. Now, someone might listen to this and say, none of that's relevant because we have domestic detention authorities. You're, you're assuming that the international law of armed conflict drives this. Well, here we come to a point that's really relevant for the next issue. Yes. And that is the uh, the yeah, question, yeah. which I don't think is as open as the majority seem to think here. I don't think it's open at all. The detention authority that is driving the train at Guantanamo, for especially for those three lingering military detention or bust detainees, it's the NDAA, yeah. which which uh, codified the FY, the FY 2012 NDAA. It's got clear provisions stating much. You know, AMF doesn't say anything about detention as such. It's just all implied. The NDAA is the definitive statement of what the authority is, and it incorporates by reference the laws of war. 
as part of the analysis in sustaining and codifying the idea of using military detention of enemy combatants under the law of armed conflict, the NDAA builds that into the analysis. That is the question. And you don't have to do some of the things that the, uh, the majority opinion here imagined about trying to figure out, well, maybe maybe the law of war should just be read in for broader reasons. It doesn't matter. Congress has already baked it into the cake. So that's an error that was missed. It would have clarified that question. Yep. But it's a question they're not trying to resolve yet, but but they but could have. Be, it and, was teed and, up and it's already. it's going to be, you know, so now yeah. the next case has to resolve. Yeah. And I would say, like, some of the blame here, of course, is, and I, I haven't pulled the briefs on this, but I'll be very surprised if there is what I'm what I'm describing yeah. now as a detailed, up-to-the-moment attempt to no, assess no, where we could, are. But, Bobby, keep in mind, these briefs were, I mean, right, right. The, the briefs were filed, I'm trying to remember the timing, the panel briefs were filed in late 2019 and early 2020. Right. Right. The right. on banc briefs, which are yeah, you know, years and years ago, and the right. world's very different now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's part of, part of the problem with the court sitting on this for so long is that the case they're deciding is actually, in some respects, a different one. Well, continuing with the theme of my theme of, I don't <laughs> think they fully grasp what right. their legal framework here your, is. Your, your theme of, I am more pro detainee than Steve in this one. No, I'm sure I won't say anything you don't at least agree with and go further That's on. Uh, I'll still hold down your your right flank. Um, <laughs> there's there's an idea. Um, the uh, periodic review board process. Yes. Let's be real clear about how this works. So, in in Guantanamo military detention. The, the system for many years has been... That since, Ob- since early Obama. Yeah, well, I would say this has been the system since George W. Bush because yeah. they, they had slightly different names for it. It was an annual review board. Yes. The ARBs. But going, the going back to about 2004, yeah. um, the system has been that there is sort of a stage one determination. Are you who the government claims you are, meaning that you're, you're associated in the right way with the right kind of group, therefore detainable, under the law of armed conflict. And that ultimately in the in the more recent period has become the focus of the habeas review process. That's what habeas review is is testing. Apart from that, once you've lost as a detainee, once the government has decided and then the judges have agreed, you are in fact detainable due to uh, a belief about your formal or functional membership in a covered group, there's still a way out, and it's the way that most people get out these days. In fact, it's actually the way people used to also mostly get out under Obama and Bush. And that is that there is a once a year, or at least theoretically about once a year, further review, not as to whether you are who they thought you were and you were detainable, but even assuming that's all true, as a matter of discretion, should the government go ahead and let you go? And the basic rationale would be because though you're detainable in theory— Maybe we, given your particular circumstances, it's safe enough to let you go in the interest of the government favor letting you go. Periodic review board. So Alhila in recently had been approved for release, and the majority kind of this is my take. The majority seizes on this and gets kind of worried that well, like well maybe that means he's not detainable at all anymore, which I think is just a which Under they, the law which, of war. Which, which they pitch as an AUMF question, right. not, not an NDAA they question. They don't even, so number one, they don't even frame it as an NDAA question, which is right. a huge red flag that they don't fully grasp exactly how all this actually works. Um, two, they, they think maybe that's the hook through which maybe we could bring in the law of war question. When actually it's the NDAA that already brings it in. It's, it's, it, it's, it's just a necessary complication. And three... As far as as far as that goes, the PRB determination is by definition, in my opinion, irrelevant 
to whether the law of war permits detention in this circumstance. The fact that they found that it is safe to release him is not the standard under the law of war. Right. As unless, in, unless, right, unless we were in a different paradigm. If this were a Geneva 4 paradigm. Right. If, right? You, if you really blow it up, you can get there under right. Geneva but, 4. But no, I, I'm not saying That's we're right. there, right? But yeah. like, just like, this is shorthand. But guys, I mean, right, the, historically, the Geneva, th the third Geneva Convention is the prison, is the indefinite detention of prisoners of war model, right? The fourth Geneva Convention is the security detention of non-combatants. Yeah. Protected right? persons. Um, where, where, and, and it's, it's, it is, Bobby, it always has been baked into the fourth Geneva paradigm that we're doing individualized, evolving assessments, right? And that you can't detain indefinitely. That's the fourth, that's security internment under the fourth convention. Right. And it's it's not the NDA, nope. nor the government's position, nope. nor any of the habeas ruling's position that that's the applicable framework. I mean, I, I mean I, it might be normatively preferable. It, it, it arguably would be a, a more fitting model, but it's, but Yes. None of the branches have embraced that. Nope. It's always been, and by the way, it's not Third Geneva either. It's un, because right. no right. one is claiming that these people actually qualify as POWs. The claim, going back to Hamdi, is that they are, though not qualified right. to, for the privileges of, of being a member of the regular armed forces, they nonetheless are combatants in the context of an armed conflict. So it's been an analogy plus, to... Plus Hamdan and Common Article 3. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, with, with, with protections right. layered on by Common Article so, 3. So I, this to me is what is so profoundly um, unsatisfying about this denouement in Al-Hila, which yeah. is the one claim they send back, <laughs> right. right, is the claim that strikes me as the least interesting, the least sophisticated, yeah. and I think squarely foreclosed by the statute they don't even cite. Bingo. So, right, versus, I, I would have loved, right, more development of whether the PRB clearance affects the due process analysis, right? Because that's where maybe there's daylight, right? Like, you know, it's not, the PRB doesn't change the statutory analysis, but maybe the PRB changes the due process analysis in a world in which the due process clause applies. I can see that for sure. I think, I think as a formal logic matter, that's right, that, if, that it's meaningful whether... Uh, you, you might argue like, well, no, suspension clause analysis, yeah. meaningful review still picks that up. But, 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 imagine, it's a, but it's an argument that needs to be analyzed. I mean, We're right. 20 years into this. So let me put it this way. Imagine a world. So let me go back. Remember Zadvitus versus Davis? Yeah, yeah. Right? Zadvitus is this immigration. It's yeah. a case. It's, a, it's the last case the court decides before 9-11. And it's a question about how long the government can hold a non-citizen pending removal if their removal is not reasonably foreseeable. Right. right. The, like somebody who's like, ah, where do we send the guy? Right. And we have nowhere to send He's him. removable, but we have nowhere to send him. Him. Right. Um, and so in, in Zadvitus, you know, the court articulated this sort of six month default. Right. And as, as a matter of substantive due process, that that in general, um, you can once you have decided that he's both removable, but also you've nowhere to send him. You really have about six months to hold him after which you got to do something with him. Right, right? now. Breyer, of course, in his opinion, say, has this caveat for cases of terrorism and national security where there yeah. might be special right. circumstances. This, this scenario is... My point is not that Zadvitus applies. My point is that Zadvitus contemplates what to me might be a plausible argument here, which is not that like the day the PRB clears you, you have a right to go free, but that the government has an obligation once the PRB clears you to make meaningful efforts to obtain your, your release. And I think the majority clearly sees that whole chain of analysis, and this is another frustration. They basically say, like, you know, to be sure, it could be that you get nothing from the this because it's clear the government is – it's obvious the government is doing what it can in the PRB clearance cases to move people along. Literally in a moment we'll, – or we already at the top of the show noted they just did another right. one. Yep. 
And, and it's clear from other litigations that there's just not much the courts can really do to spur them along in a way that changes anything. I mean, we, unless, in, unless the court says you've got six months, you know, or you've got, yeah, you've but, got but we've seen months. we've seen lots of kind know, of flirtations with this. I forget some of the big cases over the years. Um, but Kimba, the Uyghurs. Is it Kimba? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so at the end of the day, as long as the government in good faith comes in, the court says, look, our diplomats are, are doing the work. I know. They're just not going to get further This feels like it. old home week to me. We're oh, right? talking about got like Kimba and like the Randolph panels. And We're old enough to remember when these were actually the news of the week. I know. Uh, all this, I think we've, I think the point has been made. Yeah. But, but just to me, the bottom line is um, for, for how long the D.C. Circuit took, right, this is a profoundly unsatisfying result, not just because I don't agree with it, but because I don't think it moves the ball forward in any meaningful way. I don't think it actually provides any of the clarity that the Guantanamo cases need. I think it misses what are the best arguments to actually resolve in this space. It remands, I think, what is one of the least persuasive arguments for, I guess, Judge Lambert to deal with on remand. Right. Sorry, Judge Lambert. <laughs> um, and it's just like, you know, I sort of, I feel like a, a pox on all your houses. Like, I mean, don't we want to move the ball forward? And the D.C. Circuit's like, eh. Well, that's how that's how it comes to be that in uh, right. April 2023, we're, we're still here. The, the same damn things. All right. And, and, and sorry, just last yeah. point. And that's, you know, I and, and where that's really going to show up is if there isn't some, is if we don't end up blowing up the military commissions, if there isn't some massive, like, plea deal to sort of shut down the military, if the military commissions keep going, that's where the sort of non-resolution of any significant due process question is going to have enormous consequences. Right, and, and eventually, what it, it means, like, at least another decade of up and down litigation because, about these right, issues. Speak, because because right. of the problematic D.C. Circuit ruling in Al-Nashiri 2, right, that prevents collateral challenges to the military commissions until after trial, right? And so the due process question that could have been resolved here can't yeah. be resolved in the military commissions until post-conviction appeal. I think it's fair to say that the fundamental sort of political economy problem we've got here is that the amount of political capital needed to actually finish off and shut it all down in the Milcom process is is much higher than the level of sort of broad-based payoff for the administration. Like, it's just not worth their trouble. And, and the pressure it's, it's receiving to, 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 to end it. Right, that, which is which is what explains the low payoff level for the White House. So, therefore, it just chugs along. and. But all, which, which brings me back to where I started. All the more reason to be especially frustrated with the litigating position of the federal government and the D.C. Circuit's acquiescence therein. It explains it. All right. Uh, there we go. How a patented Steve God damn it, Guantanamo. Positive... Positive classic Steve side. Okay, we've got this uh, Jessica Jessica Badia case. Ah, yeah. Speaking of things that took a long time. Yeah. <laughs> now in this case, so let's y'all let's make Steve happier. Let's talk about a case he can be happier about. I, I am I, something good actually happened in a case I'm involved right. in. It's, in your, it's so rare. So so I guess somebody saw your advertisement and called you up and said, "I've got this case you won't believe. Yes, and uh, I want you to represent." Uh, law- lawyers in Chicago were driving down I-35 and saw the Steve Vladek billboard. I, I'm just kind of picturing you, you know, I think about like Jeff Davis, 444, 444. What's your number? What's uh, Steve's number? What is my number? Call 222, 222. 867-5309. <laughs> That's how they got your number, is it? <laughs> Steven, I got your number. Oh, my Lord. Okay. Um, 
So actually, this is how I remember part of my my one of my car's current license plate has among other things five three zero nine in it. Does it really? Oh, that's that's sweet. Um, all right. So really, really quickly, does Tommy Two Tone have any other? That was a true one hit wonder, right? I think so. Um, really quickly, but let's get back on back on track. So. This is actually one of so you know what we just did was like core bread and butter national security law. Yeah. Um, is actually more on the sort of weird Fed court side of national security law, and so there's this 1988 Scalia decision called Boyle versus United Technologies Corporation about whether um, private plaintiffs, victims of military accidents, right, can sue contractors where the contractors are responsible, or at least allegedly responsible, for the accident. So in Boyle, it was about a, a defective helicopter escape hatch, right? The helicopter crashed into, I think it was the Gulf of Mexico, might have been Atlantic Ocean, some big body of water, um, and the hatch only opened, uh, what was it, outwards? Oh. Right, which, you know. Design defect. Yes. Um, classic design defect claim, right? Um, you couldn't have brought that claim against the United States directly because of the discretionary function exception of the Federal Tort Claims Act, but the FTCA doesn't apply to contractors. And so the victims in Boyle tried to sue um, the contractors who designed the helicopter. And the Supreme Court, in opinion by Justice, by Justice Scalia, says, no, you can't do that because there's a federal common law, a judge-made military contractor defense for those cases in which the contractor is merely carrying out the contract yep. specifications. Yep. The idea being that um, sort of the federal court should derive yes. from the federal government sovereign immunity a parallel immunity yeah. for contractors. When you outsource the function, you also outsource the immunity. That's the idea. Now, you could, so those who are hostile to federal common law, as most of the conservative justices are, um, might argue that that outsourcing is a policy decision that ought to be made by the legislature and that Congress not extending the FTCA ought to be given some weight. Um, I am not as averse, right, to the product of federal common law making. I think it's more appropriate. And so Boyle's always been this weird outlier case where it was the conservative justices who supported fashioning a federal common law rule, and it was the liberals who opposed it. Um, Scalia famously actually will refer to it for most of the rest of his career as his worst decision. <laughs> um, anyway, there is a, but so this is where this becomes a national security thing and not just a military thing. Um, in a series of cases in the 2000s and early 2010s, a bunch of courts of appeals, <coughs> excuse me, take Boyle, which was about the discretionary function exception of the FTCA, and extend it to a different FTCA exception for combatant activities, where um, one of the lead cases is actually about torture at Abu Ghraib, where some of the victims try to sue the contractors who provided you know, additional manpower and support services for the Abu Ghraib prison. Um, and the DC Circuit, by a two-to-one vote, um, says, nope, Boyle, you know, Boyle says you can't bring the suit against the contractor, even though this is a different exception of the FTCA, it's the same idea. Um, that was a remarkable panel. It was Silberman, Kavanaugh, and Garland. Um, and it was, and Silberman wrote the majority opinion. Then Judge Kavanaugh concurred. Then Chief Judge Garland dissented, which, I mean, Garland never dissented. I mean, it was a, it's a rare Garland dissent. All right. Fast forward to this case. So, so the law in the D.C. Circuit, the Second Circuit, the Third Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit, right, supports applying the Boyle defense to combatant activities. Fast forward to this case. This case is about a plane crash in Afghanistan in 2010. Um, it was a civilian cargo plane that, at least as the, as the complaint alleges, was basically guided into the side of a mountain by a negligent air traffic controller at Kabul International Airport. 
um, a negligent air traffic controller who worked for Midwest Air Traffic Control Service. Um, so it's, it, you know, it is a sort of conventional negligence claim with the question of, you know, does the fact that it was a military contractor in Afghanistan in 2010 trigger Boyle and Boyle's application of the combatant activities exception? All right. Um, I, so I came in, the, the plaintiffs uh, uh, lost in the district court, but then the Second Circuit reversed and said, no, Boyle doesn't apply and remanded for trial. Basically, summary judgment should not have been granted in this case, and this case should go to trial. From that decision, um, the contractor petitioned for certiorari in the Supreme Court and got some pretty powerful friends. The Chamber of Commerce filed an amicus brief in support of the cert petition. Um, that's when I came in, um, and I, I helped the plaintiffs respond to the cert petition. The case went to conference like a year ago, um, and the Supreme Court did what I had expected it and actually kind of hoped it would do. Um, it issued Bobby a CVSG, a call for the views of the Solicitor General. They put out the bat signal. Yes. Uh, hey, SG, what do you think? <laughs> um, there are usually, I, I think it's safe to say there are like two different kinds of CVSGs. Some CVSGs are just total stalls. So yeah, like right. in the North Carolina affirmative action case, right, the Supreme Court issued a CVSG. <laughs> No one had any doubt what position the Biden administration was right. going to They're take. Like, we a want to get you guys on the record, and this will kick it down the road. Right, because right. the best thing about CVSGs, or the worst thing, depending upon your perspective, is they have no deadline. Right, a, a CVSG comes with no uh, return date. Um, so that turned out to be awkward in this case because the court issued its CVSG on May 2nd, 2022. Um, and like, you know, usually, right, usually that when the court issued a May CVSG, the SG will try to file by December. And the idea that that way, if the court wants to take up the case that term. It has a last chance. It has yeah. a last chance. Yeah. So December came and went, no, no, no brief from the SG. <laughs> so like, we're not doing this. At which point, you know, I'm getting a little like nervous, like, yeah. hey, what's going on? Anyway, long story short, they finally filed their brief um, last Monday. Um, and their brief uh, recommends uh, against certiorari, recommends a denial of certiorari. I, I will say, I think without speaking out of school, Bobby, for reasons that are very similar, to the reasons that we argued in our brief, the court should deny certiorari. So this is pretty good news for y'all. So, you know, the, it's no, oh, I'm sorry. I said there are two kinds of CVSGs, right? There's the, we're just stalling. We're not actually going to listen to USG, CVSG. Yeah. And then there's the, we actually really want to know if you think we should take this case. Right, exactly. There's, there's an element of deference sometimes in the background. Not always obvious which of the two types it is. Yeah, although I think this strikes me as the latter. Like, there's, yeah. there, there, this is not a high profile case. Um, right. it, you know, like, this is sort of the nature of what do you guys want the rule to be? Right, because, I mean, the whole point of the contractor defense is to protect the federal government's interests. Right. So how, the how much do you all care about this? Right. Um, and so the SG took the position in their brief, which is very similar to the position we took in opposing certiorari, that before you get to messy questions about whether the whether this was a sufficiently close relationship between the contractor and the government, that just what was happening in the control tower at Kabul airport wasn't a combatant activity in the first place. And so, you know, the SG says, like, it's possible that air traffic control operations could be combatant Certainly activities. So. Certainly so. Right? Um, whether it is, even on a civilian airport, I mean, so, like, the morning of September 11th is an example that the, that the SG uses as, like, you know, that yeah. could very well be, yeah. right? But there's nothing in the record. There's no suggestion that on the night of this particular accident, 
anything was out of the ordinary, that the airport wasn't anything other than fully normal operations. This is the largest civilian airport in Afghanistan. And so the she says like, hey court, like we never get to the messy boil questions here because it's just, isn't it, if you were suing us directly, the combatant activities exception would not apply. Do you think there are a lot of other potential tort cases against contractors out of Afghanistan over the years that won't be time barred or will they will they not be time barred because this wasn't clear until whatever ruling comes out, assuming the rulings consistent with what you're yeah. projecting. I mean there already have there. been. Do you do you remember the seven forty seven cargo crash at Kandahar? In no. 2013, no. so I, it just it sticks in my memory because there's a video of it, right? So there was a there was a, a, a it wasn't I mean was it a C1? It was, there was a huge cargo plane that crashed at while taking off from Kandahar in 2013. It had like five heavy military vehicles that weren't secured properly, right? Yeah. Um, that turned into a tort suit, and that tort suit succeeded, right? So there have already been a yeah. number of successful tort suits against contractors for tortious activity in Afghanistan. I think. If this went the other way, right, if if the court grants and reverses, that will put the kibosh on whatever's left. Yeah. Um, so anyway, what happens now? So the SG's recommendation is in no way binding. The court has, on lots of occasions, granted over a denial recommendation and denied over a grant recommendation. We'll see what happens. But now this will go, it'll be distributed for conference next week. It'll go to conference, I think, on May uh-oh, uh, 18th. So All we'll right. know more like the... May 22nd. Sounds like cert denied. I hope so. We'll see. Here I am rooting not for a Supreme Court argument. <laughs> you know, you don't always want to win those. Right. Um, did you want to touch on this? Alito? Alito's. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of the Supreme Court. Yeah, speak. So there's our segue. Okay, go. <laughs> I just pressed the big green button. Go. Well, I mean, I, I sort of wrote all this up for my Substack yesterday. Um, by the way, it is getting so hard to plug Substacks on Twitter. Like, the algorithms are so. Are you like shadow? Uh, it, so getting... I'm, not sh I'm not shadow ban, but like, if you look at the engagement levels for tweets of mine that are like, you know. If you mention Substack, Substack, it like doesn't the get... word Substack. We put a link to a Substack. I mean, it's just whatever you know. Anything that that there's clearly an algorithm that is that is suppressing. You any know, what's interesting about that suggests a lot of people are using the for you function as opposed to your your timeline. Following, yeah. Don't guys, don't if you are not already using the following tab on your Twitter. Um, make sure you, I, I, who was I with yesterday? I was, uh, some, at the faculty, oh my gosh, one of our colleagues who I tend to think of as being somewhat savvy about these things was on the For You tab. And I was like, no, 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 don't no, be on For You. sweet summer child. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, so really quickly, speaking of the Supreme Court, um, and this is also a good chance to plug my book. The Shadow Docket. Wait, it's such a laugh because I, I couldn't resist opening Twitter while you were saying all yes. that. And I went to For You just to see what was up there first. Yeah. It's Karen. Dear University, oh. dear, <laughs> <That's sweet. laughs> dear University of Texas, this is Steve's wife. Is the first thing he recommends to me. Dear University of Texas community, That's if, you you. See, if you see Steve Flatek wearing flip flops on campus today, please know I tried my best to stop it and do not in any way condone this behavior. Thank you. <laughs> All right, for you actually worked oh, in that. It, it, for see, you actually. That's succeeded. pretty funny. All right, that that, that, right, that that's that, funny. That disproves my thesis. Um, <laughs> All right. Okay. Really quickly, um, Mifepristone land, right? So um, for those of us who spend a lot of time following the Supreme Court, um, big ruling Friday night, uh, the Supreme Court issued a full stay pending appeal of the Amarillo Federal District Court's order that would have blocked the FDA's 2000, 2016, 2019, 2021, and 2023 approvals and, and sort of further 
relaxing of the approvals of Mifepristone. So this this froze things totally froze for Fifth Circuit. Uh, all, until the Supreme Court acts again, oh, all the way up. Yeah, okay, which, yeah. which, by the way, is not unusual. Like this is not yeah, like yeah. This, this. Some people were like, "Oh, look, there! It's a special shot at the Fifth Circuit." No, 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 no. no. This is this is typical administration right. of the. You might even say this. You, you might even say this is like this is old school, right? Like emergency applications, where it's like, you know what? Um, we're just going to hit the pause button on everything yeah. until and the case the comes and, yeah. and let the normal appellate process run its course. And if you right. want to come back at the end, we'll be here. And this way, we don't have interim back and forth about is there a stay, is there not a stay. Just we're we're just put, we're just freezing everything. Okay, which means just sort of practically, right? It means that therefore nothing has changed. No, at no point did the Amarillo ruling go into effect. Nothing has changed about access to and legality of mifepristone. Um, the only reason why I think this is worth mentioning at all is because Justice Alito wrote this remarkable short dissent um, that I, I have to say, Bobby, the more I read it, the more sort of not confounded, like astounded I am by it, um, in which he levels three charges. So charge number one is that um, the justices who voted for a stay are shadow docket hypocrites. Um, right, and the way he describes their hypocrisy, first he actually misquotes Justice Kagan, like he cuts off, he truncates a quote from a Kagan opinion about what her criticisms of the shadow docket are to make it sound like there's something else. Um, but then he also says like, you know, I thought you guys were anti-emergency relief and now you're voting for emergency relief. It's like, that's not what the criticism is, right? Like, So is it, is it, is it sort of saying, and I've seen some of this surrounding your work on the yeah. shadow docket that... Ah, so you're against any use of these preliminary mechanisms. And that's not, not your critique. It's, it's never been my critique, right? I mean, the, right. There, there are always going to be, right, outlier lower court rulings that might call out for interim relief. Like, that's, that's always been true. It's always going to be true. The issue is not emergency relief. The issue is the pattern, right, and the extent to which the way the court is interjecting itself is inconsistent with the doctrinal statutory rules, Right for when it's supposed to grant relief and when it's not. Right, okay. like that's the critique. And so, the, so his, so Alito's first criticism of the majority, yes. which issues the stay, is I thought you guys were against all stays yes. in the preliminary yes. context altogether, which seems remarkable. Which is not not fair to them. Right, agreed. And and what's fascinating is he doesn't just go after Kagan and Sotomayor; he goes after Barrett. Um, which I yeah. think is a remarkably internal, internal dynamic. You know, one of my theses about the shadow docket is that you can actually learn. Sometimes the justices are more candid um, when they're writing quickly and with less deliberation. Interesting. Um, his second yeah. charge is that the Biden administration isn't in the FDA is not entitled to emergency relief because it has unclean hands. Um, because it has, and his his two sort of justifications for the unclean hands are one that they had not yet appealed the ruling in the Washington state case, um, right, which was a sort of competing ruling about access to mifepristone. And if they really were, you know, and they shouldn't be able to get emergency relief here when they haven't sought relief there. Um, but he says they didn't appeal. Bobby, we're one third of the way through the appellate period. Like, oh, so, so the deadline hasn't run yet? No, but he says they didn't appeal. You think they're likely to appeal? Yes. So um, <laughs> that's kind of silly. But he also says, right, and they opposed intervention by seven states. Um, right, which I, I think, I mean, folks should read this for themselves. In context, he seems to be implying that they opposed intervention for the purpose of appeal, right? That they tried well, to the stop. Idea, like, we, you, I thought you guys didn't want right. this because right. you opposed these right. people. Can, but of course, they probably had other reasons for not wanting the intervention was The intervention was before the judge in Spokane ruled. The intervention was because yeah. these seven states wanted to make different arguments. 
Well, it's the whole thing seems. Wait, there's uh, one more. There's, oh, there's I'm more. Not, oh, I'm not done. There's one that you're gonna like. This is this, not not like, but there's one that, that's more national. And then finally, he says, <laughs> "There's right? one. I'll, there's one I'll feel like is more relevant." Yes. There's, <laughs> there's, so finally, he says, um, um, "And as for Danko, right? Because one of the two sponsors of Mifepristone was also seeking emergency relief. As for Danko, he says they can't show irreparable harm because they can't show that it's likely that they're gonna be prosecuted." For violating the like, if this order goes into effect, you know the Biden administration can and surely will exercise prosecutorial discretion to not prosecute them for acting unlawfully. So therefore, there's no harm. That's the there's, argument. There's a lack of interest because you probably won't get prosecuted by this administration. Never mind that you know that. First of all, that's not going to matter to Danko's counterparties, insurers, like well, or just their lawyers who are who say, yeah, yeah, go for it, right? <laughs> Break the law, see what happens. Go for it. But wait, then he says, and here's the best part. Then he says, um, and in any event, right, the the government has done nothing to dispel quote legitimate doubts that it would decline to inf uh, uh, comply with an adverse ruling in this case. Right, nothing to dispel legitimate doubts that it would decline to comply with a ruling. Has there been any affirmative indication of this becoming one of those rare historical moments in which the executive branch might flout the judiciary? No. So this, so so, I mean, so that's that's a that's a hell of a thing. It's a hell of a charge, right? I mean, so it's so this is why I, th I knew this would get you interested. Yeah, yeah. No, right? no, no, no. You've got my attention. Ex parte Merriman. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, you got a Lincoln situation in our hands. Right? Shades of of Andrew Jackson, even. Uh, uh, Breaker 4-9, we've got a Chief Justice Taney situation. Um, so so here's what's remarkable about that passage, right? Um, what's remarkable about that passage is there are Democrats who have publicly encouraged the administration to ignore an adverse ruling. Senator Wyden from Oregon, uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, right? Okay, so there are people talking about... Yes, uh, a Republican Congresswoman, Nancy Mace, right? I mean, there are members of Congress who have encouraged the administration to not comply with this issue. I wait, see. wait, but, okay. but in response to those very public statements, the White House specifically poured cold water on it, right? At a press briefing, um, uh, right? KJP, the press secretary, said, you know, we're, we are not interested, like, no, like, we are not interested in this. become civil disobedience? Yeah. And so the question John is- John Marshall's made his ruling, let him enforce it. But no, I mean, the White House specifically said, we're not doing, you know, we are yeah. the US government, we don't do that sort of right. thing. But so the, there's sort of two points there. One is like, you know, where are these legitimate doubts coming from? Well, not in the record. Well, not in the record. And so, I mean, right, they're coming from right-wing media, right? But two, like, you know, I, I, can you think of it a case since Merriman, right? Merriman, where Lincoln famously refuses to comply with the writ of habeas corpus issued by Chief Justice Taney. Can you think of an example since Merriman where the executive branch overtly refused to comply with an adverse court ruling? No. I can't either. Right, and so it's just it's it's, no, it's, just, it's quite it's quite a bomb to drop. Yes, uh, and and very unnecessary. Well, uh, so the irony of all of this is that even if even if it were true that the White House had actually you know raised like like that doesn't change the fact that Danko, this private corporation, would suffer irreparable harm even if they weren't prosecuted. Like even if the White House didn't comply with the ruling, Danko would be harmed. Like it's it's yeah. I, I will admit to from your description, it sounds. Pretty wild. I, I think I have summarized it fairly. If folks yeah, yeah. think I have not, I hope they will tell me. But but it's it is a remarkable insight into it, it's part of why I think the shadow docket is so interesting because I think you get when the justices write separately, those opinions tend to be a little more unvar uh, is unvarnished, right? Unvarnished, uh, yeah. yeah. Lacking in varnish. Well, this is all awfully <laughs> awfully timely timely well, for the so launch, right? <laughs> <laughs>
Um, the so Shadow Docket. I, I'm holding up the actual book that I finally actually have. I, on Saturday, I got my 20 hard copies of the real Begilda. That's what you get, 20? I got 20. Man. I gave one of them to my dean. Yeah, that was a mistake. Uh, really He's going like, to put it on display in the office. Seriously. Um, so uh, three weeks from today is uh, publication day. And then you're going to hit the road? And then I'm hitting the road. Uh, where, uh, New York... Uh, wait, New York, San, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, Austin, D.C. You need to make a concert tour T-shirt. Well, or I could wear. I mean, Karen got me a Taylor Swift T-shirt Sunday night in Houston, <laughs> so I could, I could just wear that. But she had to wait in line for like two hours to get that. She for actually you. did not. She actually did would love it, well. it if at least one of your book events you would wear a Taylor Swift T-shirt. That's interesting. He's, he's thinking. He's thinking. I should wear the Taylor shirt and not the professor with the Twitter account shirt. Well, you have to, like Taylor, yes. you'll have to do costume changes mm. at, at your own event. <laughs> Dash off stage. Book Come people. Back. Next, at book people, you're like, hey, that was chapter one hall. I'll be right back. It's it's Steve Flattic eras. Um, let me just say, so I just want to say um, to folks who are considering pre-ordering the book but haven't yet, wait till tomorrow. Um I can't say much more other than there's going to be a special 25% pre-order opportunity um, that will be available starting on Wednesday, April 26th. Blue light special on the shadow document. I'm just trying to save people money. No, I mean, you're going to buy the book. Got to do know. it. So anyway, um, lot. But oh, and the, so this brings things full circle. So all I have to say to Justice Alito is thank you for helping with book sales. It certainly enhances the, the visibility of, of the Yeah, of the yeah, issue. that's so interesting. <laughs> well, and, you know, I'm only going to say a few words here about this last topic. Yes. Sort of, we have a recurring segment Ooh. on the show for National Security. What, what are we at right now? This is a long one. <laughs> I just looked over. I was like, oh, we're at one hour and seven and a half minutes. Like, oh, really? Oh, this is, this is an old school episode. Yeah. All right, well, I'll keep this quick. Um, we like to check in on National Security Division. There's always tons of things oh, yeah, happening with prosecutions that we're not actually covering on the show. But I just want to note the sort of what I think of as the Cold War II uh, set of developments from the past couple of weeks. Uh, out of Tampa, I believe it was, you have uh, you have a number of arrests and a fascinating set of charges involving a Russian FSB, Federal Security Service, um, what amounts to a covert operation to do information operations in the United States, trying to either work with uh, knowing Confederates and or useful idiots who were cooperating in, in in trying to stir division within the United States. So a bunch of American citizens, as well as, uh, it, I think it was three Russian citizens, I could be wrong about that, um, indicted for this information op. And then separately uh, in New York, you have this, this, this story. This story is wild. I love this story. So um, uh, a, a regional branch of China's uh, is it the Ministry of State Security? Something. I, I forget, it, but it's, 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 it's a police function with an outpost, it turns out, of like somewhere off Canal in Chinatown in Manhattan. And they've got like some office space, and there's at least a couple of guys there who are basically acting as agents for overseas repression of the regime's enemies. And um, these, so two guys, one guy living in the Bronx, one guy living in Manhattan both with a seemingly a long track record of working on behalf of authorities back home, doing all sorts of things to advance their particular overseas enforcement activities. And you could say like, well, this is just undeclared overseas law enforcement. Well, it's more than that when what they're doing is try to extend their their intense political suppression into the United States to go after people who are resident here, lawfully present here, who well, are regime they, dissidents and weren't or they critics. like misrepresenting their authority? 
Oh, I'm sure there were. I'm sure there's all kinds of wrinkles along those lines. Um, but of course, just the spectacle of it, you know, just thinking about being on Canal Street and, and having yeah. some of this sort of apparatus extending into the United States from there. So this actually, um, this this reminds me of something I should have thought for us to talk about anyway. But um, this puts into, I think, helpful context a pretty important, a quietly important Supreme Court decision, a merits ruling from last week, written by Justice Kavanaugh in the Hawk Bank case, hmm. um, where the court held that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act does not apply to criminal prosecutions. Oh, interesting. Um, relevant which, indeed. Relevant indeed, right? So, so the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is the statute by which you is it's the only mechanism by which you can bring. We used to think any lawsuit, but now a civil suit, right, against a foreign sovereign or an instrumentality of the foreign sovereign in the United States. But the court has now clarified by a seven to two-ish vote, right, that the FSIA doesn't apply at all to criminal prosecutions. So what do you think? Can you attach that to? Sorry. So, yeah. so if, if, the, if the United States were to prosecute, right, members of this entity, if not the entity itself. And they would say, hey, we're law enforcement agents. We're deputies. Right. In fact. So the FSA, so what, what the Hawk Band case establishes is that the FSIA has nothing to say about that. And it would instead come down to common law principles of foreign sovereign immunity. Interesting. Sorry, just... Uh, yeah, no, that's, it's, it's, it is really relevant because there's... So the reason I wanted to emphasize the Cold War II framing is during the Cold War, there was, uh, you know, you've got various rules all implicit kind of customary understandings that were largely but not always honored between uh, the United States and Russia about what happens with their clandestine agents operating in other parts of the world, but especially in each other's territory. And what we've got emerging in the, in the new uh, sort of multipolar Cold War II situation we've got, um, you have a lot of hostage diplomacy, coercive detention of both Americans and, you know, such as the Wall Street Journal reporter the Russians are now holding, um, and and others, such as what happened with various Canadians in connection with the Huawei prosecution. So you have these sorts of situations unfolding overseas where completely bogus, trumped-up charges are used to take uh, citizens from the West into custody and hold that as a bargaining chip. And then on, on our side, you've got increasingly... Uh, increasing willingness to bring charges through the formal criminal justice system with actual rule of law protections and assessments and lawyers and so forth. Um, but these things are, are going to sort of gradually, I suspect, escalate upwards over time. Um, so If they haven't already. I mean, we well, I mean, they, well they, they definitely already have, right? right. And, but I think I'm suggesting this is going to continue. It's already probably, it's obviously unwise to go to Russia, extremely unwise. Um, and depending on who you are, it's seems somewhat unwise to be traveling in China. Um, I don't think, I mean, would you go? No. Yeah. So anyways, um, but you know, we've been talking for well over an hour about serious stuff. We don't have much time left. And we're talking about New York, natural segue on Canal Street. You will see Giants jerseys and Jets jerseys. Steve, let's talk football. Um, Must we? Well, we got to talk about Aaron Rodgers. Um, I hate that guy. And and also, you can say whatever you want to about the Giants in the draft. I suppose. I, I don't. I have no. I am not one of those football fans who obsesses about the draft. Like I, I have only one interest, and that's what happens with Bijan Robinson, yes. the, the the most wonderful True. guy, an incredible running Let's back. Let's talk about baseball instead. You want to talk baseball? Yes. All right. Uh, break it down for me. What are your reactions early in the season? Um. Holy cow! The pitch clock is making a difference. Yeah, have you yeah. watched? Have you watched a game? No, it's really it's it's. I I like this. It's so much. 
it's just so much more tolerable. I'm so I will I will like this. I am it is disrupting my pattern, right? My pattern is like I sit in front of the game and I work. Right. Well, well, for you, this is a total disaster because you you want like a two minute break between right. pitches. I want I want I want things to happen slowly so I can like not yeah. so I can divide my attention. This is strong evidence of the wisdom of installing the the pitch clock. Well, so listen, I, I, this is not me saying it's a bad idea. This is just me saying there's an adjustment curve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think I think that I think it's going to be great. Um, I like the sort of you know the the increase in stolen bases. I think is great. I think the. Um, you know, it's more I, fun to watch now. I was, I, I was, and remain very anti no shifting, but yeah, I'm, I'll live with it. Uh, who and he, the Mets are in second place, so all is fine. Uh, are the Rays for real? No. Yeah. What about? Uh, well, who is for real? Um, I think the. So I think the. I think the Braves are for real, but I, I would have said that anyway. I think the Mets are probably for real. Um, you know, I think the Rangers might actually be decent. Isn't that something? I mean, at some point, all that spinning's got to pay off. Um, and the, what's odd is, I mean, and the Astros are really not off to a good start. So yeah, that they'll division, be fine. Yeah, know, but they, that, well, they started the season with no left-handed pitchers. Well, none. That's, that's true. Literally none. Whereas the that's Mets crazy. had this, the Mets had this remarkable thing where in their first twenty games they faced ten left-handed starting pitchers. Amazing. It's bizarre. Uh, I mean, you get you get those weird sort of small data. Problems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Part of so, fun. Um, you know, I don't. So I don't think the Pirates are for real, although they've been very hot, right? I think the Brewers are very good. Um, yeah. I mean that that re- that impression might have been reinforced by the Mets getting crushed in the game <laughs> series in Milwaukee, um, but yeah, I you know I, I just I I'm I'm excited. I think it's going to be a fun. He's for real, Shohei Otani. Shohei, he, that guy can play. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, we we have lots of things that we haven't watched because you know April is a busy time to be a law professor. Yeah, remarkably, one of us. So I've watched The Mandalorian. Yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. believe you've not. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll I just, know. What are you doing? What are you doing with all your free time there, Vladik? Exactly. Well, I will just say, um, it's fine. It's better than Boba Fett. Oh, it's not season, the best. Not as good this season. Uh, it's fine. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm trying to lower your expectations okay. so that if, when right. you do watch I it, you that. Enjoy I, that I've more. heard really really good things about the season three of Picard, but I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Well, I got to catch up to season two. The the only thing Karen and I've been watching is Ted Lasso, and I have to say, season three. Interesting. So I've not caught up at all with season three, and I'm sorry to hear that. But maybe that'll help me enjoy it more. Indeed. At the same time. Oh, we're lowering each other's expectations. Exactly. <laughs> um, what else? What else? Oh, uh, I took Cindy. Well, while Karen and Maddie were at the Taylor Swift concert, I took Cindy to the Mario Brothers movie. Oh, <laughs> so is it as good as the Saturday Night Live uh, spoof with Pedro Pascal? No, it's but me. But I will. I will. Mario. I will say, like, for folks who spent any of their youth playing any version of the Mario universe of games, there's a lot of fun stuff in. That's the movie. awesome. Yeah. That's really great. Um, and it's 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 you know the the movie I mean, like all like all good movies in this genre, the movie doesn't take itself too seriously and yeah. has some fun at, at its own expense, which That's I think good. is That's key. is helpful. We'll um, see if Bal- Bowser is secretly a, a, a romantic. It turns out. Oh. <laughs> well, before I see that, I'm definitely going to see Guardians of the Galaxy. But I don't I don't think you watch the Marvel movies, so there's no nothing um, to be said. I, there. I, so if if Karen and I ever get to go to a movie again, I want to see Air. I've heard good things about yeah, Air. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like. They they said Ford versus Ferrari. That was such a surprise hit. Let's let's do it again. Let's do it again. With Jordans. Um. <laughs> we, um, all right. I think we should stop because this is long. Yep. Um, but uh, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Somehow still, Twitter has not yet totally imploded. Um, at, we had that debate a while back. So so actually interesting data point. I am now. I mean, it took a while, right? But so November is when things really started going south, right? Yeah. Today, April twenty fifth, I am now at my all time high Twitter followers. Yeah, I. Whereas I had a huge, you know, I had a huge. Um, what's uh, uh, yeah, yeah, valley. Yeah, 
right? And I'm back up past where I was when when Elon took over. I haven't looked at mine in a while because I, you know, I'm, I got I'm so far behind you. I, I don't look anymore. It's, <laughs> like these numbers are big, but they're like, wow, that's nothing. Um, but my view was, you know, there's really not a, a replacement for the particular sort that's of quick news sharing yeah. function. So I didn't think it was going to go away. I will say that the the quality. I don't I don't actually directly blame Twitter's changes for this, but just the, the sheer number of people who just don't use it anymore yeah. has made my feed less useful to me. Yes. But it's it's basically, I find it still very useful for keeping tabs on things that are happening. You, you, it's just like every day you have to change, you have to tweak how you curate, right? right. Because every yeah. day, like they're now, like they're changing core functionality or core like, you know, uh, operability things like every day in ways that like you have to deal with on the fly. Yeah. It's really annoying. And they hate Substack. Yeah. It, yeah. Maybe every so. time, every time I write anything on Twitter about any of my Substack posts, it's like it's it's like totally. Are you gonna start using some euphemism? I, I mean, we need like you know, I, I need like a they need like a, a sort of a, a, a trick, a, a, um, like a, a URL generator that actually tricks Twitter into not thinking it's Substack. Because <laughs> apparently, like if you try to do like tiny URL, like it, it pierces that. It, it reads that. It, it reads through the the URL link to see. That's what it interesting. Is. Very interesting. Anyway. But I digress. All right. Um, what am I going to say? We will, we, you know, classes are over. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll probably we'll, record maybe more we'll often. Record again. Who knows? We're going to get to, you know, I'm, I we're going to get to where you owe me a dinner is what we're going to get to. I'm this bet. <laughs> uh, maybe the book tour will help. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, everybody. Um, happy April. Stay safe out there. Adios.